I don't know whether any of you have seen that strip. Hugo, Tiger, Pumpkinhead, and you know, little fellows. And Hugo was building a rocket to fly to the moon. And uh, Tiger goes over to him and says, uh, are you ready to blast off? He says, yes, we're going to take Elsie with us. He says, you're going to take a girl? He says, we're going to leave her there. <laughs> so if you should hear me, Jenny, don't get it. <laughs> Ephesians 6.14, please. Ephesians 6.14. Our general subject, as you know, is standing, really. And this particular subject is standing with our loins girt about with truth. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth thus far. We're living in a day, beloved, when dishonesty is rampant. In government, it's just unbelievable, isn't it, what we've discovered about politics and government and people in government in the last years. It's the same in business. Don't they tell the biggest lies right over TV, TV about their products, you know? A patent lies, thing you, you know can't be so. They tell them anyway just to sell the product. In society, it's the same. Dishonesty is very lightly thought of. And uh, in addition to that, we have so much make-believe. The TV, movies, uh, fiction, novels, in which even if it's a good novel, forgive me if any of you like to read novels, even if it's a good novel, it takes 90% make-believe to get across 10% truth, or something of that kind. Aren't we much better off, beloved, in our ministry of the Word if we go right to the Word of God and expound it and do like Paul did, reason and persuade and teach in order to help people understand the truth. Now, here the truth is called a girdle. Uh, that's not so familiar to us men. A girdle, of course, is a support. And uh, I began to dig into this a little. The first thing I looked at was the Bible dictionary. But so often, Bible dictionaries are really not Bible dictionaries. They showed old girdles, pictures of old girdles, you know, one place you put your dagger in and another place you put your coins in and another place there was a sash hanging for some reason and so on. But I wanted to go to the Word of God and see what I could find about a girdle. And the girdle was always simply a support. It was a support around the middle, evidently a very wide support to help uh, support the individual who was very loosely dressed in those days. Generally, they wore robes, evidently. And this girdle was to help them in their walking, in their working, in their running, in their uh, uh, activity, in warring, especially in fighting. Buckle your belt, we say. Well, they weren't thinking of this kind of belt. <laughs> they were thinking of a girdle. Now then, we had a pastor. Uh, his name was Ford C. Ottman, Dr. Ford C. Ottman of 
Stanford, Connecticut, preached for us years ago with a series of meetings which ended on a Sunday. And uh, the Sunday afternoon service, Dad felt, should not be too long if he wanted a crowd for Sunday night. In those days, they didn't have as many cars, and people just didn't come all at once. They came straggling in. Many of them had walked. Some used public transportation. And Dad, just as a hint, said to Dr. Ottman, now, just to get the best possible crowd tonight, I would suggest that you speak a little shorter this afternoon so that everybody will be able to get back home and have dinner and come back again. And Dr. Ottman did what I have never seen anybody do before or since. He uh, started with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He went into the fall of man. Just read, he said, let us read the scriptures. Read the scriptures about the fall of man. He read about the, the flood. He read about the Tower of Babel. Then he got to the Abrahamic covenant, later to the Davidic covenant. And then some of the descriptions of the kingdom to come and then John comes as the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is uh, preached by Christ and the twelve uh, following John the Baptist and then uh, the Holy Spirit comes Christ is crucified and raised and the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preached at Pentecost he just went on reading the scriptures and dad looked at me as much to say well he better he better get started soon you know and after he had read all of this, got sort of a panoramic view of the whole Bible, he said, uh, uh, shall we close in prayer? That was it. That was the whole message, and it was wonderful. It really was. Now, this won't be as wonderful, I'm sure. I trust the Lord will bless it, though. But uh, I just was thrilled as I read what the Bible says about the truth. What the Bible says about the truth. Let's look, please, at John 8.32. Well, you know it by heart. The Lord said it. The truth shall make you free. There's nothing that can set us so free as just having told truth. There is nothing that can give us a clear conscience and the power of the Spirit in our ministry like just having told the truth. If I have done wrong and, and gotten into trouble of some kind, to tell the judge in the court all the truth gives support. It's sort of a girdle to us, and in a way it sets us free. John 17, 17, he says, uh, Sanctify them, set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 1 Peter 1, 22, See, ye have purified your souls. Isn't that a beautiful thought about the truth? You've purified, you've rinsed, you've cleansed, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. And of course, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now then, Let's see what God would have us do about the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 25. And beloved, before God, I speak to myself first and to you next. 2 Timothy 2, 25. In meekness 
instructing those who oppose themselves. If God for adventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, here he's speaking, of course, of those who are uh, opposing the truth. But he says, instruct them in meekness, because it is not easy, is it? It is not easy to repent and acknowledge the truth. But there we have to start. It's important in the Christian life, too, and I've just brought that out. But there we have to start, do we not? The sinner has to acknowledge his sin. Otherwise, there is no salvation. He has to come to the place where he acknowledges the truth, comes in repentance, acknowledging the truth. But there's more than that. When we get saved, we have to get into a, oh, what shall I say, a frame of mind that is conducive to godliness and to growing. In 2 Timothy, I beg your pardon, in Philippians, I meant to say, and the fourth chapter and the eighth and nine verses, if you remember, there's just one verse in the Bible where you find a ten-letter word six times. That's right here in Philippians, the fourth chapter, and the, uh, the uh, ninth verse, beg your pardon, uh, I meant to say, I'm sorry, where is it now? Whatsoever thing? Eight of the fourth chapter? No, I've missed it. Philippians 4, 18, right. No. 4-8. I'm in 4-8, but I'm in Ephesians. That's the trouble. I threw that one. All right. Philippians 4-8 it was. Finally, brethren, there you have a ten-letter word six times in one verse. Ask your friend sometimes, can you give me one Bible verse where you have a ten-letter word six times? They'll say, well, that's hardly possible, but it is. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Isn't it true, beloved, that often our minds bring us so much trouble. We keep, we dwell on the wrong things. We dwell on things that are not constructive. We dwell on things that will bring, will bring us or others blessing. So he says, think on these things. It's a battle of the mind, really, is it not? A battle of the mind, living a life that's victorious and happy and blessed and used of God. Well, I don't have to say much about that, do I? There it is, whatsoever things are honest and of good report and so on. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. The next thing in Ephesians 4 and the 25th verse, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his, man, with his neighbor, I'm sorry, for we are members 
one of another. You'd think this is hardly necessary to write to the dear people that he could bring such high and holy truths, such wonderful heavenly truths as those who would read the epistle to the Ephesians. But it was, put away lying, he says, and speak every man truth with his neighbor. Then in the 26th of Acts, we have something my mind went to immediately about more than just our conversation with one another and our conduct with, toward one another. But uh, as to proclaiming the truth, remember how uh, this uh, Festus became all upset. And I have a feeling I know why he was becoming upset. It was hitting home, you see. It was certainly hitting Agrippa home. It was getting him at his heart. And Festus calls out to Paul, you've, you've gone mad. Much learning has made you mad. And Paul says, oh no, I'm not mad, most noble Felix, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So we are to proclaim the truth. And that's what will make it so strong. Now look, please, if you will, in the second of uh, second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians and the 4th chapter and the 2nd verse. 2 Corinthians 4.2 Here he says, now this has to do with his preaching now. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. There can be hidden things of dishonesty in preaching, beloved. People can use gimmicks and ideas and all, you know, make it seem so wonderful when really they're not speaking from the heart. They're not speaking from conviction and sincerely so he says, we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by, this is a wonderful passage, by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Beloved, this has a real bearing on conversion a real bearing on salvation. When we preach the truth, and it is evidently the truth, men must be dishonest to reject it. They must, they must be willful to reject it. So we manifest the truth. We say, here it is. Here's what it says, the truth of God. We manifest the truth and so commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now it's getting more important and getting stronger all the time, is it not? There you find Paul really exercising this. He goes down to Jerusalem, remember? They sent him up from Acts uh, 15 and from uh, Antioch. They sent him to Jerusalem. God sent him to Jerusalem. He says, I went up by revelation. When we came there, he says, there were false brethren, unawares brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty. And you know what he says? To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Why? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's as I read these scriptures. Just, to, just look at the word truth. I thought, how beautiful. This sequence is here. What God would have us do about the truth. I think that there is one thing, though, that we should always remember we must be uh, firm in the truth we must be 
faithful to the truth. We must be honest in heart as well as in word. But a young girl said to me just recently at the meetings in Ohio, we had a meeting just with the young people. They wanted to get together just with them. So it's fine. I had about 25 young people. And one fine girl, I mean a good testimony, spoken of that way too. And she said, uh, Mr. Stam, I wonder how can we get the grace methods to people without hurting them? I find that when I just talk about religion in general, that doesn't bother them. But when I get down to the nub of the grace methods, they get hurt, they get offended. And I know I'm not ever going to win anybody that way. What do I do? How do I bring them the message without offending them? Well, I tried to tell her this, that first of all, we should be careful, and I, again, speak to myself as well as to everyone here, we have to be careful not to be offensive in what we say, not to say things that are almost bound to offend. It is so natural, so easy to do that in the heat of discussion or, or whatever, so easy to do that. But apart from that, there is no way you're going to get the truth to people without their sometimes getting hurt. It's the truth that hurts. Uh, Brother O'Hare said to me one time something that sort of jarred me at first, but then I began to think, wait a minute, I think he's right. He said, you know, they come to me and they said, well, couldn't you do it in another way? And then I think, oh my, how, what an impact he had. Somebody came to me one time and said, we can only be like Brother so-and-so. You know, he never offends anybody, and yet he preaches. I said, how many has he won for the message of grace? How many has he won for the Lord? But uh, you cannot do it without hurting them because the conviction of sin enters in there. And people become upset. They often become hurt at what you're telling them about their need of Christ, no matter how gently or graciously or loving you, lovingly you might do it. Still it remains, as Ephesians 4.15 says. Now we're in the 15th verse. Ephesians 4, chapter 15. But speaking the truth in love. Just that little passage has to do with our growth. Don't you think, beloved, that is the essence of diplomacy? People want to be diplomatic, and yet they want to win people. It was a pastor I knew years ago over in New York, many years ago, and he believed this with all his heart, and he got it to try to get it to other people, but always in kind of a surreptitious way, a sort of a just confidential you and I, because people in general don't like this, you know. And he wrote me, uh, we have a good congregation here, but uh, this is a place where you have to tread very softly. And he surely did tread softly. After he'd been, he'd been there 22 years, he came to visit me in Milwaukee one time. And we had grown up together. He says, Neil, you and I have been very much the same in a way, very different personalities. He says, I perhaps would think you're too outspoken and you perhaps think I'm too diplomatic. But uh, we're both on the same track, we're both working for the same thing and we're both producing. I have two men on my board now that believe this, two men on his board after 22 years. You see, and I said to this young lady and to all these young men, 
We must ask the Lord to help us to preach the truth in love, to speak the truth in love, but above all things, let's ask him to open our mouths. The devil would like to close our mouths, and Paul says, pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the truth of the gospel or the mystery of the gospel. So we must not forget to pray that God will uh, bind a burden on our heart for the needs of those about us that we may do something about it. Just being uh, very diplomatic doesn't produce it. And just uh, being uh, practicing the in love but not speaking the truth, you see, that doesn't produce. We have to speak the truth in love, and I think that is the essence of scriptural uh, diplomacy or tact. Now then, what about the enemies of the truth and those who should be its friends but really are not? We read something about them in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. Ever learning, this is those who have a form of godliness, Ah, but they deny the power of it. You don't, the godliness has tremendous power, but you don't see it in their lives. They have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And in the seventh verse, he says that they're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that a picture of this world about us? Hungry for knowledge. They want to learn more, and they keep learning, 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 but they can never say, I have found the truth, until they get saved. Then they know that finally they found the truth. Well, you have more about them in Romans 2.8. They disobey the truth, but you have that about the saved, too, in both Galatians 3.1 and Galatians 5.7. Whose charge is that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Christ has been set forth, so plainly crucified, set forth among you, so plainly crucified. Who's charmed you that you should disobey the truth? So we have to look at ourselves as well. The unsaved are lost because they, they just reject and oppose and disobey the truth. But it's possible for the saints to disobey the truth too. And in 2 Timothy 3.18, now... I believe he's, or the eighth verse, I should say, 2 Timothy 3 8. I believe he's speaking here of the unsaved in the terrible apostasy to come, or we're in it already, really. But uh, the, uh, third the third chapter and the eighth verse, he says, Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the truth. How often we find in the book of Acts that the people of Israel resisted the truth. It's possible to do that. What has happened today in uh, the fundamentalist branch or the evangelical fundamental branch of the church? The mainstream of fundamentalist religion. What has happened that they don't want to touch us with a ten-foot pole. They can get books like, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I've written this myself, but our Great Commission, I really don't see how they can look at that and read it and, 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 and gainsay it. 
It just tells what the Great Commission, the so-called Great Commission, says and what it doesn't say. And practically everything it says we shouldn't do and don't do, and practically everything we do preach today it doesn't say one word about. It mention the body of Christ or the, or the heavenly position that we have. It doesn't mention the preaching of the cross. It doesn't mention salvation by grace. It doesn't mention salvation without works or without the law. None of that is in the so-called Great Commission. And you can show it to them, but what do they do? They take two aspirin tablets and, and a drink of water and they try to forget it. That's what they do. And what has happened? Because of that, the neo-evangelicalism has risen. Because of that, they've started to say, well, let's forget the things on which we don't agree and all preach the things on which we do agree. And of course, in that way, doctrine was whittled down and uh, less and less became really important in what was taught. And everything is general, nothing is specific. Well then, let's go to the fourth chapter of Second Timothy while you're right here. And uh, the fourth verse. Here's what's happening right in this situation. They shall turn away their ears from the truth. Now, not only the saved do that, the unsaved can do that too. They don't want to, they don't want to listen, don't want to consider it, don't want to hear it. They turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto, you know what that word fables is? Don't think of Aesop's fables. They're illustrations, you know, the dog in the manger and so on, won't let the cow have any hay and he can't eat hay himself and so on. Well, they all had a little lesson. But the word here is simply stories. And some years ago, I had on my desk a whole, whole heap of our modern Christian magazines. And I looked through them. Stories, 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 novels, success stories. How to do it? Well, this success story. Here's how so-and-so did it and it worked and it worked so well. And uh, stories, all stories, and Paul speaks of this in other places, don't give heed to stories. <laughs> don't give heed to stories. Study the word and preach the word. Well, here you have it in the fourth verse. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned to story. I may be way off base to some of you here, but will you just consider this. My dear dad, whom I've mentioned sometimes, I, he thrilled me again and again. He was a truly great man of God. And people used to try to, to get us read, to read novels. Joyous Judy and the Rover Boys and what else, you know. And he'd say, why do you read these novels? It's all make-believe. History, at least, is as interesting. Why don't read history? There's the Encyclopedia Britannica. You find some things in there you'll find are most interesting. And above all, go to the truth, go to the Bible. And I'm so glad for that when we were 14 and 15 years old. My brother and I were reading Jabalai and Ironside. One night we were in bed together. He was reading one, and I was reading those two authors, the other one. I was reading Jabalai, and he was reading Ironside. And Mother calls up, boys. Come on now, lights out, it's time to go to sleep. So you know what we did, we rascals? We had one of these glass chandeliers. And uh, my brother got up and he pulled the chain and went bing, you know, and the light was out, fine. But she didn't know we had two flashlights. And we went on, we were that interested in the word of God. And I thank God, I shall never cease to thank God for that kind of a heritage. 
a father, and that was a naughty thing to do, but it did illustrate that we were, it did indicate we were interested in studying the Word of God. And I think there's a tremendous lesson for us here as to the enemies of the Word, and even the religious enemies of the Word, they turn away their ears from it. And as James 3.14 says, they even lie against it, lie against the truth. And uh, 2 Peter 2.2, 2, because of them the truth is evil spoken of. What's true can be evil spoken of. And of course you have the worst. The truth of God never suffers really from opposition. Let's Madeline O'Hare go ahead. She can't do any harm. But it does suffer from perversion, doesn't it? Here it says they change the truth of God into a lie, and it's possible to do that. They perverted the truth of God and changed it into a lie, and the next thing was all lie and no truth anymore, worshiping the uh, creator, the creature, more than the creator. Well, what's God going to do about all this? What's God going to do about this world that will not receive his truth? Well, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved. I'll just read it as it is here. God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire for them. Why, what will he do if they reject it? Turn back just a couple of pages. Second Timothy, the second chapter, and the tenth verse. And with all deceivableness, he's speaking here of the coming of the, that man of sin, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perished because they received not what? Not just the truth, the love of the truth. They wouldn't. God, that shows God loved them. If they wouldn't receive it, must mean God loved them. They received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall give them, send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, just a few words about the truth itself, the truth as such. There's a verse that was a real blessing to me just recently. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. What does that mean to you? Well, I'll tell you what I get out of it. I think I get out of it. Number one, we can do nothing against the truth. Let's start there. Don't you worry about Madeline O'Hare, she's going to die and die a terrible death if she doesn't come to know Christ. She may laugh and have fun. She may cuss about it, talk in rough language. But she'll go. She'll die. And she hasn't heard the truth. It's like 
she's trying to overthrow the rock of Gibraltar with a pea shooter. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Now, if you see what I see, or think I see in this, it's that even if you work against the truth, God is going to use that for the truth. You can do nothing against the truth, but it will turn out for the truth. How God says in 1 Corinthians, what is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 or 8, 13? He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and he makes the wrath of man to please him. You can do nothing against the truth, but it will turn out to be for the truth. And I think perhaps there's more yet than that here. We can do nothing against the truth, but we can do much for the truth. There's God will use us. How does he put that in in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, the the uh, third chapter in the ninth verse? Uh, As workers, laborers together with God. We're laborers together with God. And... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20 says we're ambassadors for Christ. We pray we'll be reconciled to God. And then in the 6th chapter and the 1st verse, he says we then as workers together with God. Isn't that a blessed thought, beloved? That God would have us work with him in making known his truth. Well, let's go back to Ephesians 6, 14 and with this I'm finished. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. The first part in the armor of which Paul speaks here. Stand therefore, having your loins gird about with truth. This may very well make the difference or spell the difference between standing and falling, may it not? If our loins are girt about with the truth, that may very well spell the difference between standing and falling. We're in a battle. Satan is against us. He would destroy our Christian testimony. But we may stand, we can stand, if we have our loins girt about with truth to support us in our consciences, to support us in our witness for him. And, of course, to support us against all of Satan's attacks. Well, this is one of those uh, Plymouth Brethren scripture reading type messages. I hope it proved a blessing to you. I just went through the words truth, and I was thrilled as I saw all that they had for us. Thank you, dear brother. thinking, Mr. Stan was speaking, that uh, though it's blessedly true that the truth unites, the truth also divides, doesn't it? This is something that a lot of people don't see. Uh, through the years, I have uh, had people say to me, isn't it tragic how this message divides people, believers? It does. And the truth always divides. God's not the author of confusion. 
There isn't uh, half a dozen interpretations on a scripture. There's only one true one. It's up to us to find out what it is. Well, uh, we have lots of time, brother. You, uh, you Usually what we do at this time, after a brother gets through speaking, we throw it open for questions and comments from the audience. And the brethren may have something they want to ask you that might be helpful. Yes, Harlan wants to start off. Come up, come back up, brother. I'm there. Yes. Can I know can I say I don't know? Sure, that's the best thing to say. Well, I was interested, Brother Sam, in that uh, word Musos in 2 Timothy 4.4, which you rendered story. And I've been, I, I told this long time the message, and that it seemed to me that if a person taught scripture out of context, success stories and stories that novels and so on but in a way it's the same thing because what they're preaching is not it's not exactly the truth it's more of a relation of what they feel about it you don't change the thing in itself it still is the truth you malign it and view it yeah, right. so you are actually making a story out of it you couldn't possibly obey it Taking it just to be story, but I think that could very well apply there too. Though. Okay. Thank you, brother. Anything else? This hasn't been profound. So. Clarify, brother Stan, if you will, in your. I want to capitalize this thing. Sure. Remember. Uh, we're reminded of the uh, verse, uh, therefore my beloved brother, be steadfast, unmovable, always abound, how can you be unmovable, always abound? <laughs> That's steadfast. There are three things that are unmovable. Always abound, steadfast, steadfast, unmovable, unmovable. that's as far as the faith is concerned, always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? He doesn't want it to be unmovable as far as the work is concerned, that's for sure. <laughs> Must be very to start moving. But people don't always see that. That's right. There. That's right. It's uh, be steadfast and unmovable as far as the faith is concerned. Oh. Yes, right. And uh, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. You write out one more on a message. 
history and something else. Oh, it was an article on what is truth. And uh, many people think of science and philosophy and religion. Well, you don't find the truth in science. You find truth, but not the truth. You never get to the basis of it. In philosophy, you certainly don't find the truth because that constantly changes and all the different schools of philosophy show that you're hopelessly lost if you're just going to philosophy for truth. In religion, that's even worse. The confusion is like Babel. And you certainly don't find the truth in religion. But you do find the truth in the Bible and in Christ, the living word and the yes brother. Did I miss it or did you tell us what JCOR said to us that you did? Did I miss what you said? Did I start something I didn't finish maybe? I thought you did. About that JCOR said about what was that? Well, he said a lot of things. Somebody once said about him that couldn't say it in a nicer way. Oh, that's right. Oh, I didn't finish that. I got the little girl instead. Right. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. O'Hare said this. He says, you know, people say, can't you say it in a nicer way? And he says, I, I try not to be, he says, I'm outspoken, but I try to be gracious. I try not to be uh, ungracious about it. But he said, honestly, I don't think that has so much to do with it. He said, you tell a man the truth in the sweetest, lovingest Christian way, or you tell him it in a harsh way, be outspoken and harsh, and if he doesn't, he's going to be hurt either way. If you tell him he's a sinner and he's a savior, he's going to be hurt either way. Unless he believes it. If that truth, he says, is going to bother him. As he goes away, it won't be, he won't be remembering so much. He may try to remind himself how he said that to me, you see. But really what will bother him is the truth. And we got that in 1 Peter 2.23. 2, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. So the word of God is incorruptible seed. It won't die. And James calls it the implanted word. And he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. It gets under your skin. It gets down underneath there. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. See? So it's the truth that does hurt so often. And we just have to receive it with meekness and get the blessing that comes with that. Thank you. Maybe some people throw that up to you because they want to find another excuse or not. That's right. Too often that's just an excuse, you know. You've heard about the boy that, well, it wasn't that he didn't have more, but they didn't all lie in a straight row, you know. And, uh, he used to testify to people in church and he'd say the most embarrassing things to people and the pastor used to be so concerned about him. One time he went to one of the richest men that had been coming to church lately. He went right up to him and said, are you saved? And the man said, no, I can't say that I am. He says, uh, you on your way to heaven? He says, oh, I couldn't say that. Well, then you're on your way to hell. And all oh, the pastor heard him say it and he was he was just didn't know what to do and almost talked to the dear lad, but it didn't help because the boy wasn't all there, you know. But that was the means of this man being saved. He went home and he had never been faced that frankly with it before, you know. If you're not on your way to heaven, you're on your way to hell. And uh, that's the way he came to trust Christ as a Savior. And I don't doubt that that story may be very true and that such things do happen. God uses the... Oh, I know this. We had a man in our congregation years ago out east, and 
Oh, he, he would buttonhole everybody, and they used to, I don't like the way he does. He just buttonholes people right away and starts talking to them about Christ, you know. Ah, but the results that that man had. I often was jealous of him. I'm not, I'm not that, I don't have that ability or that, that I wish I did. But he, I was often jealous of him. People saved, Jews saved, a Jewish merchant coming to him in the store and says, you've got more than I have. I'm supposed to be one of God's chosen people. I think he hates us because it was uh, the, in Germany then what they were doing to the Jews. I think he hates us. And this man said, oh, come here, I'll tell you how to get it too. And he sat him down and that Jew was so wonderfully saved. I didn't have that gift and I'm glad he did. He buttonholed everybody, sure he did. But uh, in him was certainly fulfilled that prayer that I may open my mouth boldly because he believed in mystery too and he taught the grace message. All right, anything else? Would you agree that uh, there are two kinds of truth, discovered truth and revealed truth? Discovered truth, you're, are you referring now to that which we may discover intellectually? Which, which men discover, that's yeah. right. And revealed truth given yeah. by God, oh, definitely. It's amazing how much some unsaved people know about the Bible, it really is. And some heretics believe about the Bible, and you read them and you say, my, where did this man get this from? We forget Satan in that case. Satan is the one responsible there. But, uh, oh, I believe there is a difference. I mean, in us now, today, we might discover something apart from Revelation. I'm glad he asked you that. Well, does that pertain to the believer? Can we have discovered truth instead of revealed truth? <coughs> Brother Wynn will Doesn't answer that after. <laughs> Doesn't it apply to everybody? Well, we're talking about ourselves now. It's not quite talking about other people. <laughs> well, what, what do we mean by revealed truth? Isn't that which God speaks to our hearts about, I would think. So I guess there could be. Word. Yeah, I, oh, I think there are people for I surely think. Uh, I'll answer that question now as far as I feel it in my own experience. I think there could be uh, just discovered truth. A man finds something and, oh, that's a real intellectual, something to play with, you know, and yet may not uh, be something that's revealed to him by God and makes any well, difference. Well, you mean that his own concept. Yeah, his own... Otherwise, otherwise you can get back to the, the, the new orthodox view. Oh, oh, I'm sure that's, that's not in view here at all. I'm sure neither of the three men are thinking of that. What is truth to you? It only becomes truth when it becomes truth to you. Well, what is discovered truth then? It isn't something I've discovered. If I've discovered the real truth, it's because it's been revealed. Well, I, not necessarily. I think there are unsaved people that have discovered the truth that Christ died for their sins. But it didn't really, uh, didn't really speak to them. It didn't really see. But then one day God revealed that to them. Man can say, I believe Christ died for me, but I'm not saved. I don't feel saved. I don't think I'm saved. That may not exhaust that. That would be a big topic problem. <laughs>